Once again, I wanted to say thank you to the Mount Pleasant Community Group for the decorations, for, de for decorating this tree, because this tree is really more than just a tree. What it really is, is our affirmation of faith, our statement of faith. It's our Ebenezer as God's people, our pile of stones in the Old Testament. When God would do a mighty act, at times he told his people to pile stones there. And the very specific reason of those stones was so that in the future, when children would ask, what are those pile of stones for? Then God's people could once again retell the unbelievable stories of the unbelievable power of God. And so this tree is our Ebenezer. It says that we believe in the unbelievable. We believe the unbelievable work of God in the incarnation, that God who created the vastness of the universe, the God who is somehow vaster than the vastness of the universe that he created, limited himself to an embryo in a womb. We believe the unbelievable. Therefore, we decorate, we celebrate. We believe that Jesus, God in the flesh, is the light of the world. And so we celebrate and we light the lights. And in the light of Christ, we see glory. A glory of God that we would have never seen apart from the coming of Christ. And in this world... We need to see glory amidst all the gloom that Christ could come to us, that Christ would come to us. Unbelievable. And so Advent is a time for us to question ourselves. Will we believe the unbelievable? The incarnation of Christ, it's the live, the in color. The three-dimensional demonstration of the verse that we read in the bulletin this morning. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in Christ. G.K. Chesterton writes, To love means loving the unlovable. To forgive means pardoning the unpardonable. Faith means believing the unbelievable. You and I must believe God to do the unbelievable. That's what we're going to talk about as we come to our text this morning. Not First Peter, taking a little Advent break from that series, but the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to take them out. Turn there. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find Luke chapter 1 on page 855. And when you found your place in the Word of God, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together God's Word given to us. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is the Word of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative 
of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your spirit that always joins your word. And Lord, when the truth of your word joins the power of your spirit, change happens. Belief is formed. Faith is shored up. It's made firmer. For all those things, Lord, and for the things you have for us individually, we pray for them. We receive them from your hand this morning as we come together around your word. And we do it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. Luke knows the story that he's going to tell in this gospel. And he knows how the story begins. It begins with a virgin birth of the Son of God. And he knows how the story ends with the incarnate Son of God dying on a cross, but physically rising again to life. So before he begins to tell that unbelievable story, Luke writes these first four verses of introduction, a prologue to his gospel. And as we read these verses, it is not difficult to detect that this gospel was written for someone who did not witness the events himself. A person who, like you and like me, might find it difficult to believe the unbelievable. Well, this morning, to help us believe the unbelievable, we're just going to look at two words from these four verses. And the first word is certainty. And the second word is things. So first word first, that's certainty. Look again in verses 3 and 4. Luke writes, It seemed good to me also, having followed the things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, O Theophilus, that you may have certainty. Now, if you take these words, order and certainty, and add to them the eyewitnesses about whom Luke speaks in verse 2. Those things taken together could have a, a certain sterile feel to them. Here are the facts. Just examine them and agree to them. Something external to us, not internal, to be felt or to bring change. Well, Luke hopes, and I'm sure that Luke probably prays for Theophilus, for more than that, the word certainty that Luke uses here means to make its influence felt. To make its influence felt. To know completely through and through. And so we see that this word certainty is a thinking and a feeling word. It's a word of facts and it's a word of experience. And both are vital. And make no mistake about it, Luke is big on the facts. 
That's why he investigated everything so thoroughly before he wrote. The Apostle Paul is big on facts as well. 1 Corinthians 15 is a prime example of that. He writes there, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. And then the Apostle Paul writes the facts that Christ died for our sins, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised on the third day, that Christ appeared to many. These are the facts. So please know that our faith is based on facts. Unbelievable facts of the unbelievable work of God in our world. But Paul also uses the same word that Luke uses here for certainty. In Colossians chapter 1, when he's talking about the impact that the facts of the gospel had had on the lives of the Colossians, they had begun to bear fruit in their lives. Quote, since the day you heard it and understood, that's the word certainty, understood the grace of God in truth. They understood grace. They were certain of grace. Not just in a way that they could define it, like you and I often do. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. More than that, they felt grace. They'd been changed by grace from the inside out. The Apostle Paul uses the same word again in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know, same word, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known, same word, fully. Do you want to be known as a fact or as a person? Deeply, intimately, through and through, as the definition says. Do you want to know Jesus as a fact or as a loving Savior deeply, intimately, through and through, as the definition says? And so as Luke's gospel opens up to us, our certainty must be more than facts to be known, but experiences to be had based on the reality of those facts, the unbelievable work of God is not just for us to look at, it's not just for us to gawk at, it's for us to experience, to be changed by. And I hate to be trite above all people. <laughs> we all think we're unique, not so much. But I'm going to be trite here. Because this is the point where every preacher rolls out the verse from James chapter 2. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But it's a well-placed verse, is it not? A cautionary verse for us. The demons know the facts. The demons believe the facts. They are not in that sense unbelievers, but they go unchanged by those facts. They continue in the rebellion against God. And so this is a good time to ask ourselves, how do we relate to the facts of the unbelievable work of God as a detached observer who's respectful of, even defensive of those facts? 
Or do we long to relate to them personally and intimately? Do we long for the change that those facts can bring? These questions bring us to our second word, things. Look in verse 4. Luke wants Theophilus to be certain of the things he has been taught. When I was a high school English teacher, who loved their high school English teacher? Raise your hand. Nobody. <laughs> Sorry, Frankie. <laughs> it's just you and me. <laughs> but I had to grade a lot of essays, a lot of themes, a lot of research papers. And if I ever came across a student who used the word thing, I would circle that word with a red pen and I would write weak word. Choose a stronger word because that's what my most excellent English teachers had always done on my papers. And so I'm always trained to look for a better word, a word that can tell a more compelling story. But when I encountered this word thing that Luke uses here, I asked myself, what other single word could you use? Single word. To describe the amazing truths that describe the person of Jesus Christ. The word events. But you know the events, Theophilus? No, because Jesus' life was more than just a series of events. The word action? No, Christ did more than act. The word thought. All the things, the thoughts of Jesus, you know, Jesus did more than think. The prayer, how about prayer? No. Jesus did more than pray. I don't think a bigger, better word exists that's broad enough to include the fullness of Christ than this word things. The things that Theophilus has been taught are unbelievable things that were turning the world upside down even as Theophilus held Luke's gospel in his hand and read it. Later on in his gospel, Luke records these words of Jesus that put that idea in a nutshell, this turning the world upside down. Luke writes Jesus' words, And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And then Luke highlights that in his gospel. In his story, the mighty are brought down, and the humble are exalted. Luke writes of a great reversal, where formerly believed to be despised and rejected people, even people punished by God, they were accepted by God and used for God's glory. The poor are accepted and used for God's glory. Unbelievable. The outcasts, like shepherds and tax collectors and prostitutes, are accepted and used for God's glory. Unbelievable. Those considered beyond God's reach. Gentiles, Samaritans, are accepted and used for God's glory. Unbelievable. No one then could have imagined that it could be so or how it could be so. But it was so. Unbelievably. I mentioned these things specifically and not things like turning water into wine or feeding more than 5,000 people with two loaves and five fish or five loaves and two fish, however that goes. 
raising the dead. Those things are true. They're unbelievable things, but those things seem a little inaccessible to us, don't they? But not these very intimate, personal, individual things. They are just as unbelievable and just as unexpected. Christ was doing unbelievable work in all kinds of people individually. No kind of person was rejected by Christ. He intimately connected himself to them. And he ministered to the needs of each person to bring the change they needed. That such a big God would be this kind of God. Unbelievable. The things of God are what you and I must look for in our lives. His acts of kindness and grace to us that we don't expect. The comfort that he speaks to us through his word. Or through a song that sings the truth of his word that takes us by surprise. Unexpectedly. Just when we needed that word the most. The phone call that comes. The text you receive. Just when you needed it. How did you know to text? How did you know to call? I didn't. But guess who did know? God did. And where do you think these things come from in your life? The word of God that is just as unbelievable and powerful and a small, intimate thing as it is in the parting of the sea. Are you looking for them? You must. Because as you see them, God and his glory and his grace will just become bigger and bigger and bigger in your eyes. You will look, if you do believe, that God does unbelievable things. These are not the spectacular things. Sometimes it's the smallest things that are evidence of the reality of his presence. You know, I can't separate my life from my preaching. It's not possible to do. And I have to do ministry and I have to write sermons in the midst of things that I experience in my life. And I suppose that's a good thing. Otherwise, you could just replace me with AI. And God's people said... In the midst of whatever I'm experiencing, I have to remind myself of the unbelievable truths of God. And it has been a difficult week for my family. There has been a, 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 a tragic event in our family. There are little ears that don't know these things, so I'm cryptic. But as I've been processing this alone and with the family, it occurred to me that sometimes the most unbelievable thing for us to believe is that God is good. Because it doesn't match up with our experience in life. But that's often because we have our own definition of good for ourselves. And that definition is often informed by some degree 
you know, by a narcissistic, self-centered, indulged, entitled culture that tells us that we should be the same. But you and I have to let God define good. And if we doubt that God knows how to define that word well, then we just look at Jesus. We look at his incarnation. That he emptied himself of the rights and the privileges that he had and had the heaven of unbelievable, unapproachable light to come to a dark, sin-broken world. Who would call that good? God did, that Christ would let go of the glory that he already held in his grasp in order that he could stretch out his hands on a cross. Who would call that good? God did. The cross to which Jesus willingly and determinedly went, is the goodness of God to us. Do you believe that? And Jesus endured it because he knew what was beyond it. Joy. Scripture says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. The joy of being with the Father was before him. That made it good. The joy of our salvation was before him. That made it good. Jesus said, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That made the cross good. Jesus said to his Father, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Is that good news? Look to Christ. Look to the cross. Here is the goodness of God. It's unbelievable, but true. And let God define good for you and believe that he is always good. And let the cross shine the light of the goodness of the gospel on the darkness of doubt. If I could change one word in a song that we sang this morning, it would be this. I would change this line, disperse the gloomy clouds at night, and death's dark shadow put to flight. I would change that word from death to doubt, and doubt's dark shadow put to flight, because the clouds of dark gather over us very quickly. Lord, disperse our doubts that you are unbelievably good. Disband them, scatter them, break them up, make them go their separate ways in the light of Christ. Cut through the gloom that threatens to overwhelm us and undo us. John 1. And Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Your doubts may be different from my doubts. What you find unbelievable might be different than what I find unbelievable, but I'm telling you this. God is good 
And God does the unbelievable. And people sit in church pews regularly for years and years. And the things of God remain external to them. Still, they doubt the goodness of God. And I pray if you are that person, you will remain so no longer. I pray that you will be certain that you will enter in intimately through and through the true things of God. And if you feel the gloom, go to the word, go to the cross, release yourself from your definition of goodness and let God define good for you. You may not feel that goodness, but God knows it perfectly. God knows it beautifully. God is not a liar. And when he says all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, God means all things, not some things. And Jesus is the proof. He expected God to be good. He trusted God to be good, even when he had to entrust himself into the care of earthly parents, an earthly father and an earthly mother with sin-stained hands. He trusted, so he became a helpless baby. And on the cross, because he expected God to be good, he entrusted himself into the hands of his heavenly Father, and he died on the cross. It was all God's goodness. And Jesus not only knows it, he experiences it even now as he sits in glory at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It was good, unbelievably so. It is good now, unbelievably so, for Christ, for you, for me. We trust, so we expect. Close with these words we've already read this morning, Psalm 27. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Big period. Big exclamation point. You are good. Help us, we pray, to know your goodness. Help us, I pray, to look for your goodness in our lives. Because you're good, you do unexpected and unbelievable things in us and through us. Help us submit ourselves to, look for that good work from you on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.